Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. What's going on? Yeah, I love how Dan's entire vibe changes every goddamn show. It's incredible, dude. Yeah, well, this week it's uh, try to look a little bit like Fidel Castro and and remove books that you can make fun of. <clears throat> That's not what I was thinking. You, you went from Chamath to grad student. Now it's kind of somewhere between Keanu Reeves and Ryan Gosling in an interview is where we are. It's like like studiously underdressed, but like and matching, perfectly matching everything. I think the Italians have a term for that, right? Sprezzatura. There you go. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Yeah, the goal is to make this as entertaining as possible. So, uh, you know, rant freely, take risks, c- cut people off. Um, otherwise, Antonio, just be yourself. <laughs> well, he's, he's one beer in. We're, we're going to be exactly. okay. Dan, Antonio, I've called a, a solo episode. We're, uh, we're three, three episodes in. We've gotten a number of feedback from our burgeoning fan base. And um, turns out they don't know who the fuck we are. Um, and so they need, uh, they, they, they know who the bald guys are. Uh, they, they like the bald guys. They like some of the things we have to say, but, uh, they need to hear from us. They want introductions. So this is a solo episode where we're going to, um, talk about what we're doing here. Uh, we'll, we'll do brief bios. We'll talk about moment of Zen. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the things that happened, uh, this past week, like Lex's book list. Um, and, and also just get into some of the, uh, deeper ideas that we constantly mention, whether it's Peter Zehan or Fukuyama or some other, some other, uh, people that we, that we passingly mentioned, but should explain the foundations of, uh, does that sound like a good plan? I, I do find it funny that we're not quite famous enough that we need to produce this episode. <laughs> clear. I think it's you're famous enough, clear. Antonio. Yeah. Was that, I think, I think you're famous enough. No, I, we're, I we're, we're, we're the not famous people. here. It's funny. So I, I randomly woke up this morning. I have, I have bizarre wake up thoughts. And one is, I remember this story I read in Esquire like ages ago, back when Esquire was good and kind of pre-woke. And what a guy did was they'd often have writers go do weird shit. And in one, th- in one case, 
they hired like a tactical team of bodyguards, like the sort of people that would follow around like a true billionaire to follow around like a, a random nobody Esquire writer and just like walk around Manhattan. And the most memorable passage in the thing is that, of course, he's like famous, right? In a city where, where status is important. And someone comes up to him and says, are you somebody? And he replies, <laughs> I am somebody. <laughs> and, and so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, yes, we, I, am, I am somebody. Cool. Um, well, in that vein, then, um, I will start by introducing somebody, a.k.a. Antonio. I, th- I thought we, we should all introduce each other briefly. Um, and I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, Antonio has a very eclectic uh, background. Uh, you were a physics PhD. Is that right? Dropped out. I only got a master's degree. I, I, okay. I, 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 yeah. That's one of those things you want to drop out of, not actually finish. But <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, pursuing a master's in physics at Berkeley, uh, you then went into uh, Goldman Sachs and did uh, derivatives, uh, credit derivatives trading um, up yep. until 2008, uh, which point you then um, <laughs> started... History, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You then started a company, uh, yep. an ad tech company, went through YC, uh, so, sold it to Twitter, but then worked worked at Facebook. This is well documented yep. in, in Chaos Monkeys, which is uh, yeah. a mix of Hunter S. Thompson and Michael Lewis. As uh, if they wrote a if they wrote a tech book, um, yep. you then had a stint in in journalism. Um, this is not not super chronological. You you worked at a few ad tech companies. Uh, you had a famously brief stint at Apple, um, yep. and uh, you're now in the arena again, um, starting a Web three. Uh, attribution company, um, yeah. you know, ad tech is your is your hammer, um, and and the world is your nail. Um, is that a, is that an accurate? Um, I don't uh, know if I like the hammer analogy, but it's okay. Let's not get all Larry David about it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay, so that, that's what about, what about the you... sailboat? What about the sailboat? Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah, you're missing a bunch of steps in there, but whatever. Who cares? Yeah, Look, yeah whatever. I'm not narcissistic enough to care. It's fine. But yeah, I did live on a sailboat for a long time and sailed it around and stuff. But that's that's separate. And I also live in the middle in the sticks. Like everyone's little fantasy of going off and doing the thing, like moving to Europe, going off sailing or living in a cabin in the woods. I did all those things, by the way. <laughs> I actually went and did those things. And then I, I, I came back, mostly because I had to, because I ran out of money. But that's a, that's a separate issue. But yes, it was, they, they were all entertaining in their own ways. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I like I, to think of Antonio as the, like, that, that magazine monocle. You know, like all these weird eclectic things that people go do. It's like <laughs> Antonio. Antonio has actually gone and done all of those things. Yeah. Maybe a little less pretentious. Another thing, yeah. For example, yeah. Okay, Uh, and Antonio, what we're going to get back to that 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 point a bit, but in the meantime, why don't you introduce uh, Dan? Well, Dan's biggest claim to fame, of course, is that he's a spindle investor. Is really what he is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Always talking you back. Um, Well, no, Dan. So uh, Dan, Dan is Cuban. That's his other claim to fame. He's a he's a he's a credit to the to the tribe. And uh, early, except that I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> well, that's because you were raised outside of Miami. That was the yeah, issue. That's true. Yeah. 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 Um, it's 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 the diaspora, the diaspora being outside of Miami in a sense. Um, and then I guess employee what twenty something at Coinbase. Yeah. Yeah. At Coinbase, and then head of, of business development, right? If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and then yeah, other things, but for the most I, part, I, GM, VP of Ops, maybe something like that. I ran the consumer business for a bit, but yeah. But you were also a booth bot. I think I've seen a photo of you in a Coinbase booth. In yeah, some I was a booth babe. You were a booth babe. Wow. Yep. Well, the other thing, of course, is that you're the, you're the best looking guy in crypto. That's oh, you're thing. very kind, Antonio. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, then now, and, then, and then now you, <laughs> you've created your own um, Larry David spite store. But in this case, 
it's with respect to Twitter instead of uh, whatever the coffee <laughs> shop was called in, in Curb Your Enthusiasm. So you have a web, a fully web three version of of a social media property. So it's how, how about you tell us about Farcaster? How about you? How about you show for Farcaster? I don't know if the pod people. listeners want to hear hear about. No, no, Farcaster. people want to hear about Farcaster. But Antonio, why don't you say why you think it's interesting, and then and then Dan will jump in. Well, it's like why is Web three interesting? I mean, it, it's it's a version. I, I think it's everyone. Everyone is pining for the days of Web one when you had open protocols that were kind of uncensorable, right? And so you had to engineer things differently then, and that was before things that were sort of captured by platforms that could then be captured by regulation. And so how do how do you build that again? With and in fact, you can't go back in time, right? And so one thing is using the blockchain in which you write the pertinent state that's shared between different apps and different consumers on chain, and that exists in a consensus way. Um, another thing, I'm just injecting things into the agenda now, uh, Eric, which people have spent a little time, I do all the time uh, in the company, which is like, is Web3, I mean, it's obviously a hack, but is it actually a failure in the sense that it's impossible to create institutions anymore? Back in the day in, in Web1, like, whatever the fucking SendMail standard one is because, you know, RFP 117 said, this is what email is. And everyone kind of agreed on it and you just did it. And there was institutions around that to create that and like a sort of nerd momentum. And now like the ability for someone to actually, for all of us to agree on a thing, whether it be political or technical is kind of gone. And so instead we have this weird blockchain protocol thing, which is like literally the most Mad Max technical thing I can think of. I can see Dan has a comment here, which I, which is what I was prompted. Well, well, our, uh, Guest Mark Andreessen proposed the image tag. <laughs> a lot of people disagreed with uh, the idea that hypertext should include images, right? Like wanted to keep it academic. And then I think his his answer was, "Well, I control the biggest web browser, so I'm going to add it anyways." And so I, I think in, in some ways it's always existed, but yeah, the the version of you know how how did we get to SMTP and HTTP? Or I, I would agree with your point on institutions, right? Which it's funny, I, again, total side thing, and I'm totally wrecking Eric's little agenda here, but uh, a piece a piece by a friend of us, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Alana Newhouse of Tablet, I think, went semi-viral recently about, um, you know, brokenism and institutionalism. And I could swear, by the way, I think she stole the idea from me, although I think, you know, it's often the case that many people have this idea. I think I, I published a similar idea in a footnote uh, to a, a pull request post. And the idea here is that most people, if you actually dig down deep into it, are either institutionalists, they believe the current institutions should be maintained and reformed, or anti-institutionalist, i.e. they should be burned to the ground and rebuilt in some way. And that really is the binary duality. It's not left versus right or whatever, or red versus blue. That's actually the duality. Um, and so I think Web3 is safely in the anti-institutionalist uh, camp, which again, doesn't mean they're against institutionalists, institutions as an abstract concept. They're against the institutions as they exist today, right? And the idea is to rebuild new ones. Um, so. Vitalik also had a recent post on this, and he, he did a bunch of polls, I think, on Mastodon, uh, we don't have polls on Farcaster, so you had to use the competing product. What's that, that shipping, Dan? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of things to ship. Um, but but it was interesting because he 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 kind of brought up the point. He's like, how, what do you even define an institution as? And it made me think, like, okay, what, what I define an institution as is something that's kind of some amount of continuity, and it's largely driven on process. I don't I don't think of an institution as a, an individual. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you guys would define that term. But maybe we should introduce Eric before we talk about yeah, institutions. Yeah. Uh, so go for it. Eric, can I introduce you? Please. Sweet. So Eric, I've known for a while. Um, he's an entrepreneur. He's built um, you know, on deck and uh kind of prior to that, you were at Product Hunt, right? Yep. Yeah. And then uh 
accomplished investor, seed investor in companies like Scale, uh, I think Lattice as well, um, and a bunch of others. And he has been a, a venture capitalist for what, five years now? Seven. Oh, seven. There you go. And has a great podcast. That's actually how I first got to know him a little bit is I was a guest on your podcast and um, you've, how many, how many interviews have you done on the village global podcast? Uh, over 600. Okay. That's pretty crazy. Um, 600. Yeah. It's since, yeah. uh, 2016. Yeah. The, the reason you don't know about it, Antonio is because Eric didn't put him on YouTube, right? <laughs> he basically was Lex before Lex. And if he had just put it on YouTube and he had yeah. kind of had the facial expressions and all the, that, <laughs> you know, he wouldn't even be talking to us today. He would, he would basically be Rogan. Well, it's never too late. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, exactly. Let, let, let's start it here. Um, and, and generally, I think Eric is one of the most curious people um, I, I know in terms of just you, you always have interesting questions and, and you're, I don't know, probably in more chat groups uh, on Signal than <laughs> like any other user on the entire platform. And so the amount of information that you're getting exposed to on a regular basis and then synthesizing is, is really impressive. Um, I, I, I basically, I'm the type of person in my social network where people ask me what's happening on the internet. And I, for, for me to understand what's happening on the internet is I actually go to Eric. So like, you know, you're, you're upstream of, of, of a lot of folks. I, uh, that, that, that's very kind. I, I, I want to go back to some things that, that we were talking about in our intro because they, they're, um, they segue an interesting topic. One is this idea that, um, you both at times took, took breaks, um, Antonio, you were talking about you know the sailboat uh, ex- experience, um, and Dan, you know, in between Coinbase and Farcaster, you took um, a year, maybe even two, uh, off. And um, one argument that we've gotten in over the years is, um, you know, kind of the life of the mind versus the life of the entrepreneur. Um, you know, sometimes Antonio, you say, "Oh, I wish I could be reading all day," this this kind of thing, and, and Dan says, "Oh, I, you know, I did that. It's boring." Um, why don't you talk about your, your respective experiences kind of um, alternating between the two and, and what's preferable? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you know, the reality is my mother's a librarian. I was raised in a, in a library, right? The life of the mind, the, it's weird. The thing, you know, humans think that what happens between their ears, you're, you're either privileged the physical or the mental, I think, is what it is. And it, it's obviously a binary and everyone's a little bit of both, but there's definitely a duality there. And I think I was always raised, I was like the sort of nerdy kid who was in the library. And at some point, my parents forced me to do sports pretty seriously. So believe it or not, I was like, I rode crew I was on like the state champion boat in Florida in the, in the 90s, right? So it's kind of a hard sport. It's like the most fascist sport there is. You're literally just slugging away. It's pure pain. There's no enjoyment, but you're like this team and you win, right? And that kind of rattled me out of the little book cage. But, and since then I've been, yeah, I've been forced to come out of the book cage, but at some sense, I don't know, there's, there's some level of, um, of Gnostic in me that still privileges the mental over the physical, I think. And um, I don't know, but that said, right? I mean, there's, I don't know. Yeah. The, yeah, the, what is it that, uh, you know, history is made by people who, men of action who, who act like, or act, think like men of thought and, and, and men of thought who act like men of action or vice versa. And so, yeah, I mean, there's some, I don't know. I still just want to sit in a little quiet little room and read. <laughs> Never quite managed to, to, to finagle that. So, yeah. I don't know. How, how about you, Dan? You reject this. You, you can be sitting uh, No, a, well, look, I, I mean, I actually want to do that as well. I just, um, I don't know. I, I did it for a year and a half. I mean, read like hundred books. I know uh, telling people how many books you've read is uh, gauche, but um, <laughs> we'll yeah, it was like that. a very productive period in terms of following intellectual interests and 
it just so happened it it kind of overlapped a bit with COVID, and I got in a couple of signal groups where you know I got to know both of you a little bit better. Um, and so I got exposed to a lot of new ideas and um, could kind of follow my curiosity. And for me, I'd you know I'd only been working right. It's like school and then immediately into work, and and then had never t- had time off, so it kind of felt totally luxurious in the sense that I, I could kind of do whatever I wanted any given day. But I think the the challenge is everyone else is at still going to work. And so it's not like you're just kind of um, sitting around and, and having a salon every day, uh, you know, 4 p.m. where people come over, smoke a cigar, or, you know, drink, you know, tea, beer, whatever you want to drink and, and, and just discuss ideas. Uh, most people are grinding away at, at work. And so you kind of look around and go, OK, well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not actually progressing or even from progressing in, in the mind. Most of the people I'm interacting with don't give a shit. So um, I think that there's a, a natural pull towards, you know, it's, it's tripe, but being in the arena, right? Um, and and the, the other thing that, and we've talked a lot about this, uh, both privately and on the podcast so far, is just uh, the commentariat on Twitter. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who, who basically never d- built anything, never, never actually worked in yeah. any type of risk situation or had anything on the line. And just becoming one of those people, and Antonio, I think you've talked about this as well yes. when you were kind of in your writing phase, like yeah. that to me is like death. Like I, to, to, to be someone who's a critic yet have never done anything yourself is, oh. Like, you mean starting a Substack is not worse? Yeah, look, you start a company and it fails, at least you actually went and started a company. Then you can opine on, on whatever the latest startup du jour Twitter commentary is. But when you basically the closest thing to starting a company is you started a Substack. That's not a nag on you, Antonio, because you've actually started a company. But like that, there's a, there's a big difference between um, starting a Substack versus raising money, having employees, you know, people depending on you, all, all that. Um, I don't know. It, it, you can't you can't explain it to someone who hasn't done it. So I, I think that that that's the biggest pullback from sitting around reading books all day. I actually just got um, Thomas Carlyle's. Uh, Three volume set on the, the French Revolution. Put it on my bookshelf. Uh, I have no time to read that right now with <laughs> company and kids, but uh, I look at it every day, aspiring <laughs> to be in a, a place where I can just wake up, have my coffee, everyone leaves the house, then I can just sit up in my room and, and, and read that book. I mean, it's funny. I, I've actually made that critique to journalists, and they, they literally reply with the Substack thing, by the way. <laughs> and hey, I'm, I'm to be fair, Substack is better than working at the New York Times, right? It's yeah. like to, you have a little bit more risk. You have to look at your subscriber numbers. You know, right. you don't get bundled in with whatever they're, they're sending out every day. Yeah, if you've got a chart, you've got to make it go up and to the right. To some degree, you are. You're, exper- you're in the fray. Um, there's, there's no doubting it. I, I, yeah, I think I that's actually fair. I retract my statement. If you <laughs> are a Substacker and you're actually making your chart go up and to the right, my hat too. But yeah, I, I think there should be like a license to to, to comment. <laughs> and if you haven't built and shipped a product, then like that's it. We don't. We just don't have to listen to you, basically. Yeah. When Solana comes on or Embology comes on, we'll go deeper on kind of the tech media war of the last few years. But Antonio went on Eric Newcomer's podcast recently, and I thought that that was a really good discussion. Uh, oh, really? That kind of illuminates where the different camps are are coming from. Um, so yeah, I recommend people check that out. And also, we will. Um, we will go deeper on, on this topic. I was I was worried about going on that podcast. By the way, I think I you guys know I, I expressed concern about going on his thing. But, well, but uh, Balaji was going to disown you, <laughs> <laughs> but he loved it. He apparently loved yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. 
Dan, you brought up the, the group shot. Um, that's a segue into the name of this podcast, uh, Moment of Zen. Can we talk about this? I don't think we can. I thought yeah, this was- the first rule of Moment of Zen is not to talk about Moment of Zen. Uh, I won't give details, but I will just explain that the reason why we didn't go with two and a half Jews or Latin XXX or, or another one that we came up with that was more popular than Moment of Zen is that Moment of Zen, without getting too much details, is basically just a group chat where we met uh, or where we you know, became not just friends, but like um, sense makers together. Basically, like every day, you know, starting and probably like during COVID, trying to understand what's happening in the world, not having spaces where smart people can just like really bring up what's actually going on. And that kind of everyday sense making, we've learned to just like understand what each other care about, think. And um, that's kind of the inspiration for, for the name. Anything you'd, you'd add to that? Yeah, you're being a little Lex Friedman about it, right? You're, <laughs> okay. In fact, let's, I would call Moment of Zen, if we we're going to refer to it, almost a social samizdat. It's like samizdat, for those who aren't familiar, was, uh, I don't know what it actually means in Russian, but it's the Russian term for uh, basically censored literature that was passed and printed on like illegal mimeograph machines or whatever and passed hand to hand. Like, you know, Bulgakov's, you know, Master Margarita or Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago or whatever got passed around that way. And I, it's interesting, I'd love to date this phenomenon, right? Of like, when did the whole group chat, I mean, we've always, obviously always had group chats, but I, the feeling I have is the whole group chat trend was something coterminous with like the great awakening and COVID hitting made this all kind of happen. And the first one, I can remember the first one was actually a Twitter group chat and somehow it expanded from there. And then people like you, Eric, just were like the fucking Johnny Appleseed of group chats <laughs> going around in little group chats everywhere. And some, them, and some of them inflamed out. A lot of them inflamed out. Yeah. But some of them persisted. Like this one has lasted for years. Um, and uh, on the one hand, it's a good thing. On the other hand, it's a, it's a weird form of cope that you need to have these like away from the public spaces where you have these conversations. Yeah, my, my experience with them... Um is they were very big in crypto on Telegram in the previous cycle. So it kind of, you know, all these groups, the, the nice thing with Telegram is you don't need a phone number. It's like you can actually use a username and in theory it's encrypted um, and you can have big groups. Um, but the, the kind of interregnum between the two cycles, uh, I think a lot of people shifted over to Signal, at least in the crypto world. And I don't know, a couple of the people that we all know who, who are, kind of some of the the creators of a lot of these chats tend to be like they're, they have a foot in crypto. And so they were doing it with people that they know. I, I think there's a decent number of them on WhatsApp if you believe that uh, Facebook isn't, uh, you know, mucking with it. Because it's, it's, WhatsApp is actually built with the Signal protocol. So there are two parallel implementations, Signal, and then they took the double ratchet in the protocol and they actually implemented it for WhatsApp. Now, if your backups for WhatsApp uh, go to Facebook, those aren't encrypted, so they have all the, the chats. The other thing I think Signal really kicked off, though, is that the enforced deleting messages. So yeah. you could, and, and now all the other uh, chats basically have this, but the ability to set something to be a week or a day, I think it allowed people to feel like, okay, I have a limited window of, of what can happen here. And so, I don't know, like for me, all the Signal chats that I kind of got put into happened when I was on sabbatical in 2019. And I think it really picked up during COVID. Because as much as people were using Clubhouse, like I think the group chats were a way of of people being able to kind of maintain um, connection. And but but to what Antonio said is like to actually be able to express um, a more realistic point of view. And I don't know. There's still a decent number of them today. I, I, I like 
rage quit all of them. Um, not rage quit, but I, I just like couldn't focus, okay. right? So I had to get rid of them as Farcaster became more serious. So I only have a very few number of them today. I've always wondered, like, how many do people have? Because I, the feeling I have is some of these members, they'll go and name, have like 40 groups. <laughs> and I just don't understand. I'd love to see a network of, obviously, which is impossible to construct. Eric, next time I see you, I want to see what your signal app looks <laughs> yeah, like. It's just like an yeah, infinite, like, just like all <laughs> of these. Drunk and just wrestle the fucking phone out of your hand and like, yeah. finger on it and just look at your signal and see how many there are. Yeah, we'll show you the, the, the other great phenomenon about signal <laughs> yeah. chats is you have groups where it's like there's the group and then there's the sidebar to the group. <laughs> yes. and, and sometimes the sidebar to the group is just one person not in that <laughs> that group. Right. And so it's like, I, I think, um, I don't know that it's, it's an amazing thing because, you know, all the journalists are in these types of chats themselves, you know, with, with their peers, but it's, it's like completely unreported, right? Like the New Yorker has not written the, the kind of like defi- defining piece of, of group chat culture. And part of it, I mean, called dark social or whatever you want. It's just like, because it's not visible and it takes a lot more work to actually go build that story. Um, it just, this is, this is how the world's working in terms of like, there are a lot of these group chats and um, people, people kind of aren't aware about. I've been asked about them, by the way. Journalists have tried to like knock on the door. <laughs> and of course, I've totally done a lot of them, but I think, I think they just, there's, that's it. They've just been frozen out. And, uh, <laughs> the, the, the other thing is they don't scale, right? Like you can't have 20 people in a chat. Like they, they all kind of like, no one wants to say anything, the trust level. So, so it's like, I think the optimal is around 10. Um, and anything above that, you lose out. And then the other thing is you can't have hanger honors, like people who don't post because then they're kind of getting, they're basically getting like full exposure to the ideas without having any, any, uh, skin in the game. I remember one tweet went viral, uh, during COVID where Andy Weissman, I believe, uh, from USV tweeted out saying, what if the best conversations, uh, were happening in public, just like they always have been. And I just thought that was the epic cope. Um, because if I were to compare the quality of conversation that, that was, that happens in private with the quality that happens on, on, in public, it just night and day. Well, well, here's actually the, the shill for Farcaster, L- less Farcaster specifically, but more, if you can get to a world where you're using public and private keys as the kind of root of identity. Yeah. And obviously from a user experience standpoint, there's a long way to go to making that really easy for the average person. But Assuming, assuming you get to that, that place, the set of technology that is now available for you to be able to start building new types of speech without the need for a trusted third party gets, I think, really interesting. And, and the example I always give is foundational to getting the Constitution ratified in the U.S. was you know, the Federalist Papers, which three uh, kind of founding fathers, John Jay, Madison, and Hamilton under a group pseudonym in a New York newspaper. And so getting to that place using zero knowledge proofs or some of this other fancy crypto stuff, the, the person doing the speech doesn't have to have to know anything about it, but they, they can actually post anonymously and not worry about, oh, well, you know, if I have an anonymous Twitter account, like Twitter could dox me or, um, you know, it just like cryptographically could work. And so I do think you could actually get to a version of, of the world where maybe you're never going to get like the, the total unfiltered thoughts that, that happen in a group chat, but you could get to, okay, this is a, I don't know, pick, pick your favorite credential. This is a person with a PhD in, in virology or whatever. Here, here's what they really think about COVID and that they, they're at Stanford, but you don't know who it is. And, and you can actually just prove all of that it, without a third party, which I think is actually 
pretty cool. Um, Which gets back to the anti-institutional point, right? Because like, even in the case of the Federalist Papers, like we used to have anonymous novels. <laughs> Imagine that, right? Like literally a fucking novel, right? Like a whole book had to go through a conventional human-driven publishing process. And somehow officially nobody publicly knew their name. Because of course you could trust like the agent, the editor, and whatever, the two other people to actually keep it private. But now that, that again, that level of institutional trust that's, doesn't exist. So it has to be done by math. <laughs> and we're living in the Balaji verse again. But no. It is interesting. There's the, um, by the way, just on the brokenest point, it, in the last episode, we talked about how in the kind of the transhumanism, Luddism um, axis that exists both on the left and the right. Similarly, the, the, the brokenest slash the institutionalist also exists on, on the left and the right. Like you brought up Alana who wrote the post, like, um, you know, on the surface, you'd imagine her and Barry Weiss, you know, um, to be very aligned and similar in a lot of ways they are, but, um, Barry is much more of an institutionalist than, than Alana is. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to, to discover kind of new fault lines. Yeah. I mean, I don't think she'd mind being outed. I mean, this is the least of the storms that Barry Weiss has had to deal with in her career. <laughs> but like that, that footnote in that Substack piece of mine, in which I identified this trend was based on a Shabbat dinner that I had with her actually. And we had this like, you know, I wouldn't say screaming debate, but very heated debate for two or three hours. And I rapidly discovered that, you know, someone who's been obviously a unique, provocative, heterodox, whatever you want to call it, voice in kind of the discourse, at the end of the day, was, was actually kind of prostitutional and was less radical than I would have thought. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that she thinks the New York Times should be burnt to the ground. She just thinks that she should be running. Right? <laughs> that's, that's a very different thing than, than saying, actually, no, the New York Times should be burnt to the ground. And so I think... Uh, yeah, that's just an interesting... How, how do you explain kind of the fundamental difference of opinion there? Is it like a matter of logistics? Like just, uh, you know, um, what would be more effective? Or is, is there some like philosophical, you know, um, or aesthetic thing? Like, how do you describe the difference between like Alana and Barry there? Oh, I mean, I wouldn't compl- claim to know either of them well enough to actually delve into their psychology. I mean, just in the, in the conversation I had, right, personally, it felt like... I don't know. I think, look, a lot of it, a lot of it is just like the tech character. Like, at the end of the day your builders, which again, can often be a little bit of a pose and a LARP or whatever, but your default is like, oh, let's build a different version of this thing. And it can occasionally be naive because like, let's face it, you're not going to build a new form of the SF city government. Like you're just not. I mean, you can, you can go and try to build a new city state and that's very exciting, but that still doesn't fix this problem, right? And in some sense, you're basically saying, well, fuck it. <laughs> We're just going to leave this a mess and try to build somewhere else, which, okay, but it's, it's kind of weak in a way, right? Like, it's conceding too much? There's a, I don't know. I think both can have heroic qualities to them. One reforming institutions and improving them and the other saying, screw it, let's build a new world. Um, the reason why I think I take the anti-institutionalist side is that there's the catalyzing technologies that have basically disrupted everything. And we've talked about this in a lot of episodes, right? I think that's here to stay. And I, I just don't think an institution like the New York Times can exist in, in, in the future that's coming, right? And so, I, I feel like you've, you've evolved on this. I was going to say change your mind, but that, that has implications. I, I feel like you've evolved on this issue, which is to say, Two years ago, I remember in the chat uh, or in, in one chat with, with Balaji, um, yeah. just being like, you were negative on the charter city. I just the, the practicality of it, um, because, and because you, you've had first second experience, like, you know, um, in, you know, in some of these environments and then also some, I don't want to out you as bearish on web three, but it, it took, you weren't immediately like web three pelt. And so you, you've had some evolution on both of these topics. It seems. Yeah, I, I guess there's, there's two sides to me. One is the side that still thinks the world that we're leaving, the largely textual world of often, frankly, gatekept or edited institutions was better in some ways. Like the art and the literature that came out of that was better in many ways than it is today. On the other hand, 
Luddism has a very poor track record and nobody's actually, there is no Butlerian Jihad to drop a Jun, a Jun reference, right? And so like, look, the reality is, yeah, crypto is in fact, speaking of which, humanity virtualizing its life and literally putting digital rights on the same footing as fucking real estate, like the apartment that I'm in, right? And treating and building an entire world around things that don't actually exist outside of hard drives, right? You, you can object to that. You can claim that it's Gnosticism, that it's horrible, that it's singularity, whatever. It's coming and it doesn't matter, right? And so, yeah, I don't know. On the other hand, you know, I go back to Europe. Speaking of Europe, America, I see on the agenda, so I'm going to fucking drop the Europe pill. It's like, you know what? I'd love to go back to Spain and France where things are like intellectually like 10 years behind, frankly. But you know what? You go to a nice little French bougie home. They have their, all their bookshelves. They have the Prix uh, Goncourt, which is like the National Literary Prize every year. Everyone goes and reads the book. It's as thick as a goddamn brick. There's no photos. It's like formatted like a, like a you know, middle-aged manuscript. And everyone reads it and it's great and everyone's smart and it's very literary. And there's, there isn't anything like that existing in, in the American public discourse these days. It's all just Twitter threads. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say everyone's on Twitter. Hey, everyone's on Twitter. So like, yeah. clearly the future looks more like Twitter than it does like the pre That said, I personally like the pre but I, you know, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know what to say. He's a realist. Well, I, I feel like I'm a teetotaler who runs a bar, right? In the sense that <laughs> here I am building this company that basically is trying to accelerate the growth of Web3, like just the entire gr- goal of spindle and yet i don't actually like watch and listen to many things <laughs> like i'll often like play the games or do whatever it's like to understand the ecosystem but me personally i don't actually do it as as a person oh, i'd pay to watch Antonio be playing a web 3 game <laughs> and 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 that that's why you're you're one of your main disagreements with our first guest mark um Andreessen, where he's more excited about um kind of what's happening on the screens um and kind of these like you know newer philosophical movements and, and, and you maybe more see them as LARPs. Um, yeah. and you're more excited about... We can't use that word, Eric. Eric, that word has been banned from that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You're more excited about like what's happening on the ground in, like, say, like a place yeah. in Ukraine. And, and yeah. he um, you know, wonders if, the, if that's just like the same old scripts, but like nothing really new there. Is, is that a fair characterization? I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah. And yeah. Maybe that, we should define LARP for our audience in case they don't know <laughs> what, how we're using it and what does it mean? live action role play um like something that is not going to lead to to anything really just just kind of you know pretending or the aesthetics of it but and his response back would be that you know in the same way that every startup um you know every great startup looks like a toy um in the beginning um on tw- you know tw- you're just tweeting or forecasting about, about or casting about what you had for breakfast um you know every great political movement looks like a larp too um and, uh, you know, Lenin looked like a joke when he started. That, that, that's kind of the retort. But it's not the same. So, so live action role play is like the Renaissance fair people, right? The people who show up in some park. Or cosplay. Or, or, right, right, exactly. With like the tunic and the sword and the whole thing. But it's precisely the nerds. That, the, the, the irony in the LARP, though, is that precisely the people who are into it are exactly those who wouldn't have lasted four fucking seconds in 15th century Florence, right? In an actual <laughs> duel over a maid's you know, honor or whatever the hell, right? That is the, that is the insult, the ironic you know, insult buried in the LARP claim that they're being swept up in some great drama that they themselves in physical reality couldn't actually do. Part of this disagreement with Mark, and again, it's funny, he's like, he's like this, he's like this echo that has been coming two episodes into our thing, um, is the Fukuyama question, right? Which we've discussed a lot in the group and just more broadly, which I, we don't have to, well, actually, no, we do have Fukuyama. Yeah, yeah it's on the agenda. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay. So just so, what, okay. Just as a, as a, as a, as a PSA, whatever every listener has in their brain about Fukuyama, just fucking delete it. Cause almost without any doubt, it's completely fucking wrong. Go read your, go read your sub stack on it. Go read my sub stack on it. Correct. It is. He did not say that history would end 
What he means by that is Hegelian history. What that means is the process of, you know, physical and political, often violent transformation that has been the motor of history from revolutions and pandemics and wars and all the rest of it. And that that would come to an end. And that in some sense, the political evolution that you've seen from hunter-gatherer groups to, to agriculture, to mon- you know, monarchic dynasties, to eventually liberal democracy, I'm glossing over a lot here, okay? But at the end, and then eventually, you know, contenders like Marxism and fascism, at the end of the day, liberal democracy, there would be nothing coming after it, right? If you, if you recall Marx's original allegation that Marxism would come after liberal democracy actually succeeded, that capitalism would succeed, and then communism would divide the spoils, so to speak. And Fukuyama's claim is like, that, that's over, right? That in, in, he channels Nietzsche here, in the last man, and the last man is a sort of is the content, um, you know, man, man in the capital M sense, right, of humanity who lives in this very you know comfortable environment and no longer does the great struggles. And in, in in Nietzsche's mind, of course, that was that was a great criticism, also criticism of Christianity. It was the necessary endpoint of Christianity in which you know victimhood triumphs. And so the, the the difference of opinion here is that. My opinion is we cannot actually have progress without ending history, right? Within some sense, without restarting the wheel of history, that without actual physical conflict, without the, not necessarily being pro-war, but, w- but without all that, and it's not necessarily, you know, it's not just kinetic wars, it's, it's all sorts of struggle and strife. Um, we can't actually have actual physical progress. And if you look at the decadence in society, I think it's partially driven by the fact that we don't have those struggles anymore. Look, look at our popular media, right? It's literally rehashing World War I and World War II plots and superhero movies, right? By contrast, like, let's, what's the dramatic foil to this conversation? You know, Israel, for example, probably one of the few places in the West that still lives like completely in capital H history, you know, conscript army, basically in the state of perpetual warfare that actually has this front, very disputed frontier with, you know, a hostile other. It is it is living in history. And by the way, their media is amazing. They have all these cool, cool TV shows. They're not rehashing the 67 war again and again and again like we do World War Two, even though to them it's kind of their great moment. Also, they have all sorts of conflicts going on right now. They're, they're not a decadent society. Right. And that, that would be my counterclaim to the Mark claim that, oh, no, we can have intellectual progress, but without any physical progress. We're just beaming ourselves in some virtual reality. That's all we have to think about. The current thing is, is a reality, right? And I'm like, no, I think the physical reality is still real. And I think at some point it bites back. Um, but, so, that, but. It reminds me of the Orson Welles quote about Switzerland and Italy. Yeah, exactly. So what is it? I think it's something <laughs> along the lines of Switzerland had brotherly love and democracy for 500 years, and they, they developed the cuckoo clock. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas contrast that to Italy is constant warfare, just drama. And you got Michelangelo in the Renaissance, right? So going back to your point about like beauty in, in whether it's architecture, art, anything interesting, um, confronting real, real history and, and the kind of foundational, I don't know, parts of civilization is, is probably critical rather than everyone just being kind of like fat and happy. And I mean, this is the year we're going to get the, the Apple headset, right? So it's only going to further accelerate in some ways. We're just going to strap strap on the the headset and and go into complete fantasy land. I, I think the other it's interesting thing, going back to the institution point, um, is is a dinner party question. What's the highest functioning, best run institution in the U.S. today? Mm. I think a lot of people pre COVID might have said the military, or you know, you know, but. I don't know. I don't know. Like, is, is there any institution in America that's, that's well run? Amazon. High functioning. I mean, this is like Tyler Cowen state capacity. Like what, what, what is the most, you know, I, you could argue Tesla's the, the, SpaceX. the, or SpaceX, right. Is, is the, um, is the best run institution. I mean, the other question here, right. Just to take the other side of it is like, 
as Marcus said, social media is like the x-ray for institutions and elites. Are things just really shitty now? Or do we just have visibility we didn't have? Because if you go back and read the slightly non-mainstream histories of World War II, all sorts of disasters and shit happened back then. There was massive censorship. The journalists actually couldn't write back on censored reports. And so a lot of the flailing just didn't come to the fore, and now we see it. So anyhow, I, I think actually institutions have declined, but I think a lot of it is just a visibility question more than, more than even that everything just sucks. Richard Hanania, who we should have at some point, probably he had a. Wait, who's a, that? I've never read anything by him. <laughs> I don't even know who the fuck that guy is. Yeah. <laughs> He's fine. <laughs> he, he had a, a blog post uh, called "Women's Tears." I'm just joking. I'm not going to mention that blog post. He, he, he had a blog post called. Um, well, I guess this was a, a controversial title too. Men want sex and violence, not top-down meaning. It's pretty interesting. He's basically arguing that you know elites are ascribing all of this kind of like dearth of meaning to average people. And, um, you know, Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone thesis, like people are, you know, seeing people less. Um, but Richard's sort of counter to that is, you know, putting aside the sort of opioid problem and, and, and that being very real, actually like average Americans, um, you know, find other ways to channel their, their basic like sports and, um, culture war, uh, or, or politics. And, um, it, it, he, he posits that actually it's the it's the elites themselves who are who are you know lacking meaning and need some kind of other class to pr- to protect or take care of, um, and so they ascribe this this big uh, kind of loss to them. Um, but he says, yeah, elites are the ones struggling. Average people are, are are doing fine as long as they have sports and other kind of cultural um, things like that. But I, I think average people are always fine because they, they don't have to worry about all, all the crap. Like, I think elites think that everyone is obsessed with what's happening on Twitter as, you know, but the average person is just kind of like, okay, I, I have the things that I'm interested in. I have my family, my friends. That seems pretty great. And yeah, you need to make sure that the economy is not in the, you know, in the shitter. But like overall, the, 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 this is like just a complete fictional yeah. warfare that's happening only on Twitter. It's, it's apologies, think, the social war. As Ezra Klein, you know, had that f- famous opinion article in New York Times where he said that in, like people in his social sphere were wondering whether to have kids in, in a time like this where, yeah. you know, all you know, the climate stuff and all this other stuff. And, and they still kind of go pursue go through with it, but they they wrestle with it. And, and that's not the average American. The average American is not debating whether or not to have kids because of the, st- the state of the world. Yeah, because elites have become self-hating misanthropes, but that, whatever. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, Ezra Klein always has the Ezra Kleinist take, as it were. Um, I, you know, Richard Hanania, is it, Han- you pronounce it a different way than I was imagining. Hanania? But- okay. Um, him, yeah, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with his writing. Um, but I, I did read the beginning of that piece, and he, he started mentioning basically fistfights in high school. So I went to an all-boys high school in which, you know, it wasn't like a tough school. But yeah, there was fistfights and shoving matches, all that shit, all the time. And I don't think it gave meaning to life, but it definitely, it was formative, put it that way, right? And yeah, you, it definitely, the, the sort of, and again, it wasn't really like a hard school, but there was a level of kind of violence kind of in the thing. And it, you know, it definitely shaped your perception. But I think, you know, undirected violence just becomes gangsterism and dysfunction. And, you know, it, it needs to be, it, there has to be a notion of just violence, which I think doesn't exist in the, sec, in the sort of secular liberal paradigm either. But the, the notion, like the whole point of sports is that there's a team that represents us, and that is the great enemy, and we will beat them. And this is obviously a stylized form of that. But it's not just, it's not just sex and violence. It is a top-down thing. It has to be violence in the service of something. Otherwise, it just becomes very nihilistic, which I think Richard is, actually. That's kind of the problem here. <laughs> not, he doesn't actually believe in anything himself. Then that's why he's projecting his, his own worldview. But I, I don't know. But, but that's like 
going back to just like what what is the meaning what is the greater thing to push on and and you know we can get into religion put that to the side but i I think like if you want something secular that gets me excited is is you have the you know the apollo program and we don't we don't have like anything that today it's like he's like i'll fight climate change with the inflation reduction act which is a base bunch of pork barrel spending to a bunch of different lobbyists special interests whereas what is our version you know we had this like fusion breakthrough last year but like that doesn't people people need something to actually kind of rally behind and say going back to antonio's point one of the reasons people like sports like this is my team that's the bad team let let's beat them let's rally together and, and and unify Obviously, war does that, and I don't think anyone wants to be pro-war because all the the downsides that come with that. But the 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 lack of a unifying thing in American culture is is I, I think it's like one of the biggest problems that we have in society, and it's it's upstream of of all of the the culture war stuff that we're ticky tack fighting over, right? Whether it's like critical race theory in schools or whatever, is just because there is no actual thing that. We're right. devoting energy to saying, okay, how are we collectively making progress on something like this? And, and we're capable of doing it, right? It's like the Manhattan Project, the Apollo program, arguably the the most you know successful or, or most impressive push forward of, of civilization in a short period of time, run by the government. And and so it, we're, we're capable of it if, if we decide that we want to do that. But uh, in I don't know twenty twenty two, you know, people are more concerned about like you know, McCarthy's 13th vote in the speaker and Joe Biden has a box of classified documents in some house. Like it just, you and know. it's funny, the two things you mentioned, by the way, to be clear, I mean, obviously the Manhattan project and the Apollo program were actually sport, spurred by like massively existential tribal warfare between first Nazism and communism. And so again, you know, having coming from a physics and science background where people would just stare at equations and feel inspired and in, like the realm of discovery. Right. But you know, all these scientists were not employed for the sake of these noble goals, it was literally because obviously the Sputnik moment and then obviously the, the German threat that spurred all this. With, with, without, without the sports metaphor, no one would have gone in the field and done what they did. That, that's kind of the thing. We don't, we don't have immortality projects anymore. Um, right. And, and in, in modern society, who, who's doing the Mars program? It's Elon. It's, it's a private, it's, it's, you know, private. A single mission. insane billionaire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yes. It, it's interesting. The, um, speaking of common enemies, in, in a recent talk to the Republican Party, Teal recommended uh you know he said hey what unites the the merchant the billionaire and the priest kind of you know the the three stooges of the of the republican party the the libertarian the you know the the christian and the um the billionaire um is um or or, or someone who was you know i guess briefly the the neocon um you know pro foreign policy intervention um originally it was russia um but we, we lost that and as a result the republican party and is telling has been very fractured and he says we need to bring um, uh, recognize China as as a similar threat and unify the Republican Party around it. I just thought that was interesting in light of your your common enemy point, Antonio. Um, but he also has this other um, kind of uh, diagnosis of our culture, which is we've just become so um, dystopian and scared of of technology. You know, you compare um, how I think it was JFK or the president talked about the Apollo program back then to how Biden. Um, recognized Elon, I think he said, like, have fun on the moon, I guess, or something. Uh, you know, w- w- instead of celebrating these uh, technological advancements that are happening, we are scared of them, and thus we we limit them or we demonize them. I mean, even before Twitter, um, Elon 
was seen um, in a very mixed way, uh, despite all of his work, you know, um, with Tesla and SpaceX, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, on the Chinese point, you know, I, I was someone who was raised on Tom Clancy novels, right? In which, you know, at the tail end of the Cold War, by someone raised in Miami, by Cuban exiles who had fled what was the westernmost, you know, sort of the tip of the Soviet spe- spear in the Western Hemisphere. And like, I don't know, I was a kid, so it's hard to, you know, it's hard to think about how objective I was being. But there was this feeling, and again, in Miami, it was a little bit biased, but there's definitely this feel of existential risk about the Soviets, right? It was clearly this alternative system that had convinced Cuba and Nicaragua, and there was, you know, half a dozen revolutionary movements all throughout Latin America, and then the rest of the world, to actually live as, as they did. And I think, like, one problem, like, let's, let's imagine we're in the writer's room <laughs> of the next Tom Clancy. The problem with the Chinese is that they're not a, univers- they're not a universalizing imperial culture that attempts to, even though they have trade relations all over the world, it's not like, it's not like there's, there's a war in, in, in Namibia in which they're trying to adopt either the American liberal democratic model or the Chinese model. And the, C, the CIA is aiding, you know, the rascal on, on, on the liberal side against the other. Like, it, it just doesn't exist anymore. I was, I was reading history of the 67 of the Israel Six-Day War, and the whole thing was seen through the duality of the Soviets and the Americans. And that just doesn't, it doesn't really actually exist anymore. We, we'd, we'd like to play them up as the great enemy, but like, Let's face it. Is anyone actually seriously fearing like Chinese aircraft carriers, like, you know, sailing through the Golden Gate anytime in the next three generations? No. Like they make our shit and, and Amazon delivers it, right? Like, like it, it hard, and I just, that was not the duality under the Soviets, right? It was very different. Um, I don't know. It, it's hard to, I don't see any Tom Clancy. Uh, and yeah. That, and I think that the Chinese issue is really Taiwan, right? right. And, and we've, and, and Eric, I think you were mentioning like Teal wants the, the speed Republican issue. I think it's a bipartisan issue yeah. at this point. Like Biden has continued all of the trade stuff yep. that, that Trump was doing. You know, Nancy Pelosi went and visited Taiwan just to kind of as a snub. And I think even the, the investment uh, act, whatever got passed to do all the, the chips, all the pork barrel spending and that, it just, I, I think at a certain point, if, if Taiwan becomes less of a dependency, what, what, what is China going to do? Take Taiwan? Okay. Like that, that sucks for the people in Taiwan, but like, not our problem, right? Oh, oh, it's Danny, below your line. I'm just kidding. And the isolationist. And the isolationist. I mean, I, I like. I why? Why we have two huge oceans, right? Yeah. All the energy we ever need. We have great demographics. You know, Peter Zion, right there. Boom. Yeah. And so, I like, I, I think generally, like, right. I, I'd rather, I'd rather be building all the stuff that we're doing in China and Mexico. Well, that's, that seems to be happening anyhow. I mean, if you know, right. Apple is moving to produce many more components outside of China than than before. Um, yeah, I, I find the China issue kind of like, you know, we have a dependency with Taiwan. And, and you know, I generally like people in Taiwan. I, and I've met people in Taiwan. I've been to Taiwan. But outside of that, I, I don't like, who, who cares what China's doing? They're going to, they have their own problems. Because because we have to impose the American imperial order, man. That's what's keeping this whole <laughs> show going. You can't let them get away with it. I don't know. I, I, like, like we should we should be focused on putting a permanent base on the moon, right? Like that, that that's a way more like it's, uh, earthly matters. Who cares? Let's let let's actually uh, you know keep keep expanding. I mean, that's very much the techies angle, right? To like build this. That, that that's the anti-institution. New frontier. Yeah. New frontier. Yeah. Let, let, let's segue into into, into Zehan because we, we 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 assume a lot of knowledge when, when we talk about him, and we're gonna have Balaji on pretty soon. It's gonna be an epic debate on on, on Zehan. And I want to make sure. I, right. I, I'm yeah, sure we'll we get him too. Okay. Yeah, one, once Balaji shits all over him, we will uh, send it to Zehan and then have him oh. come on too. He, he was just he was just on Rogan. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool. Um, 
Dan, why don't he you had hear- a really bad Bitcoin take. He yeah. lost a lot of fans, I think, with that take. I mean, it's nonsensical. Like yeah. it was just not not rooted in any amount of logic. So we'll debate with him on, on that too. Dan, why don't you give a brief overview on kind of um, what are the main Zahan principles or, or, or worldview? Yeah. So I read this book. I want to say it was 2016 or 2017, and I think. Um, it was interesting because it was much more contrarian at the time. And and this is actually my biggest issue with Peter now is that he, in some ways, he was proven right in a lot of different things. And so he, he's lost some of that alpha juice. But it, his book, The Accidental Superpower, um, it first starts with history and then talks to kind of like about the US. And, and the history, it talks about kind of the great nations are generally driven off of having a good balance of transport, which is generally navigable rivers. So you can talk about Egypt, you could talk about um, France, whatever. Uh, now, fr- France is not a good example, but um, <laughs> I, it, it basically he starts, starts with balance of transport and he talks about rivers. And then he moves and says like all the great civilizations uh, ha- have some amount of river. And if it has good transport, great. Then he, then he goes to deep water navigation, which is, more modern. And he talks about if you look at all the major European powers, they're the ones that have the best navies. And so whether it's the Spanish or the Dutch or the the Brits, that's um that's the kind of next phase. And then industrialization, which obviously the Brits then are first, and then the Americans uh kind of get there. And if you actually look at the those three components for the US, we've got the best river system in the world, the Mississippi, Missouri. Uh it, I think it's like combined compared to everybody else's rivers, like you know, it's like the next five or seven countries or something like that. Uh, we, we have a very good Navy and we also have these two massive oceans as natural barriers to preventing, you know, invaders. And so that's good. And then from an industrialization standpoint, the U S is, is like, uh, riches in terms of the amount of natural resources that we have. And so from a, a modern developed country, I think it's like the U S is the least export dependent country in the world. Um, and if if it really needs to, like, can sustain on a whole variety of different things without having to do any trade externally. So it's like a very rare, rare country in that regard. He also spends a lot of time talking about um, just like how the 20th century economic system developed. So you have Bretton Woods happens kind of end of World War II. U.S. becomes the reserve currency of the world. And, and then post-war, and, and going back to this, you know, U.S. versus the Soviets, he... It basically says the U.S. subsidizes globalization as a way of fighting communism, right? And so it's like, we're going to be the the Navy for the whole world and make shipping free. You don't have to worry about pirates. Um, and that's coming to an end. And so he, he wrote this book in 2014, and, he, and, you know, this is still peak globalization. And he's he's claiming deglobalization is going to happen. Um, and energy, which is, I think in the early two thousands, if you think about like Iraq and, and just kind of like this, like energy security peak oil, his point in, in the early 2010s is that this new thing called fracking is actually going to give the U S uh, the ability to be energy independent. And then he has a couple of follow-up books and, and he ends up getting right on a whole bunch of things. He also predicts kind of like American populist president that's anti-globalization because it's kind of hollowed out the middle of the country. So he kind of gets Trump, right? He gets Ukraine, so right? He, or Russia, yeah, Ukraine, well, right? well that, that that's a whole other thing because then his later books he really goes into each of these other countries and he and he maps out what's going to happen, and and he's a geographic determinist and so he 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 grew up at this uh, think tank called Stratfor which is a bunch of ex CIA people and so you know, he's talking about like 
Russia has seven points of, of uh, land access that they always need to control you know, in the Caucasus, the you know Ukraine, the what is the Fulda Gap or all, all, all these different things. And so he's been right on a lot of things because he he nailed a fracking and, and energy shift that happened. And then I think that the deglobalization stuff, which he 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 said was was going to happen, and I think it just Trump accelerated it. And and, and he, he he'll be clear. Biden has actually been as as tough on on the trade side of things. And then the other big thing that he loves to talk about is demographics, right? Demographics are destiny, and he, he spends a lot of time talking about the the four generations. You kind of have zero to twenty, twenty to forty, forty to sixty, and sixty to eighty. And so he's got like this kind of like nice system for like how the world works. And I think your your first version of reading him, you're kind of like, oh my goodness, like this is this this just like explains how everything is there. But as you kind of get closer to a lot of the stuff, um, you especially in areas you may know more than he does, you kind of realize he glosses over a lot of details. Which this is the you know the Gelman amnesia of okay, well, I read one thing where I don't know anything, and I think that this person is an expert, and then when when you get to my area of expertise, I realize all the things that got wrong. But I think what what makes him compelling, regardless of like how much you buy into Zionism, is there's just a lot of primary sources that you can kind of go look at. And, and, and there are some pretty basic first principles things, right? It's like, if you don't have enough energy, and we're seeing this in Europe right now, although they have some very abusually, uh, unusually warm weather, so they haven't had to burn through their reserves, like you, you, you have like downstream effects that happen very fast. Like you have to shut down industry, you have to ration, and... Um, so I, I think where he's strongest is is actually saying, hey, we have this globalized system. Fundamentally, to make the globalization work, you actually have inputs. And if those inputs stop working for whatever reason, you can actually have a cascading effect pretty fast. But I think he underrates things like technology or culture or institutions. Um, uh, the, the book I always cite is Why, uh, Why Nations Fail, um, which talks about like this like institution mix with like, you know, laws and or economic system. And, and Zion kind of would like gloss over that, basically saying geography is, is destiny. Sorry, that was a little bit of a long run. That was great. I know we, we bring them up a lot because I think it's relevant because a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world right now has this geopolitical element. And I think he, he's a framework for approaching it. But I mean, I, Tony, I know you're not as like keen on him totally. And so I'd be curious what your response is there. I mean, he's like the Jared Diamond gun germs and steel of the right type person, right? In the sense that, again, it's geographic determinism. A lot of the arguments he makes, you can make about Brazil, for example, and yet Brazil did not turn out like the United States, right? There's a lot that it, that makes the United States the United States. It has more to do with, with rivers. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I was just looking in the bookshelf. I have, one, I have his most recent book, on my, on, I think, on the other bookshelf that I haven't totally read. Um, but yeah, he seems very glib in that he gl- seems to gloss over a lot of things, but it reads well. I can see why he's successful. Um, yeah. Well, he's predicted a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, I just to add some more context because his his worldview has a lot of implications. If you if you take um, yeah, as given that U.S. will retreat, he he in one of his books he he chronicles which co- countries will do well and which countries will will be fucked. And, and the ones he says will be yeah. fucked are uh, China, Germany, um, Russia, uh, Iran, and you know putting aside Germany, like it's ironic that the the countries that are most critical of us um, perhaps are also the most dependent on us. Because he says, basically, if the U.S. retreats, the things that you need to be successful as a country are, you, know, you mentioned geography, food supply, uh, good population structure, and, and military. 
So, so those four are, are totally fucked. China, he says, is like beyond fucked. They import 85% of, of their energy. They can't, like the one child policy means they can't even re- repopulate. Um, they have massive credit and debt bubble. Like he lists all these reasons why he thinks they're going to implode within the next decade. And I feel like he's even, he's moved the conversation on, on, on as, as well as, you know, COVID and other things on China. But he says the countries that are going to succeed, um, besides the US, uh, you know, Canada, Mexico, I think, um, are um, France, Argentina, Turkey and Japan, basically the countries that were doing fine before the the war, war the you know post World War II or Bretton Woods order. Yeah, but he, like let's go through Argentina, like that's a basket case. Like they, they're institutions that probably don't, even if they have good geography. Japan is the the oldest I think demography in the world, so it's older than China, which is what he always cites. And so he kind of comes up with a whole bunch of reasons why Japan is going to work, but but China won't. Um, and, and I think like Turkey, fine, young country, like regional power or whatever. But I, I, I don't know. Like, I think the other thing is like, so like, what is his understanding of AI? Like when he, when he thinks about artificial intelligence and an exponential curve of, of like how fast that's moving, he approaches it from the silicon, which obviously you need that. And so he's thinking about like, okay, w- you know, how do you, like the Chinese have an inability to now get because of this uh, Biden sanctions the, the, the right silicon so that they can actually make progress on AI. Like, uh, I don't actually think it like kind of works like that because he, he, he dismisses software as kind of being this like, oh, whatever. But, but the reality is there's a lot, a lot of stuff that can actually happen very fast. And, and I think he, he glosses over the technological change because he, he, he like approaches it with a very like U.S. military platforms view of like, oh, our, our next generation fighter is 20 years ahead of, of the next you know, com- comparable. And it's like, well, what happens if the Chinese hack the American defense systems and, and, and you can't operate any of these, these fancy pieces of weaponry. So I, I, I think like he, he has his strengths, but he definitely has his weaknesses. Well, how can you spice it up and just say like, if the shit really hits the fan, what country would you flee to? Right? Like that's, that's really the question. That's a little bit more operative rather than playing, you know, fantasy football with geopolitics. Like uh, it's another debate that we had where it's like, you know, these very virtual arguments, like, all right, motherfucker, just like, let's hit where, where, you know, the Norks nuke LA, where do you run? Right. So that's a very different question. I, you know, I, you're not going to pick up and just fly to Japan as a, as someone who's not Japanese. Right. Um, I often ask myself these questions, but I think I'm a little paranoid, but where um, would you go? What's your answer? Yeah. Well, it depends what shit hits, which fan, I guess is the, <laughs> is the problem. Um, you know, Spain, the mother country is kind of a good option. It's done. Okay. Given all the convulsions of 20th century Europe, it actually came out not terribly because um, it's no longer kind of on the way to anything. I mean, it used to be um, on, on the way for um, for the Islamic conquest, but not really anymore. And so kind of set out World War II. Um, Israel's interesting, potentially. You, you could claim that actually. Wow, so you, would, you would be in the middle of everything there. <laughs> no, no, but, that, no, no, but that, that's exactly my theory. I think the last vestiges of like Greco-Roman Western democratic thought are going to be kept alive by a bunch of stubborn Jews protecting their little promised piece of the desert in Israel. That's, that's what I think is going to happen. Like literally Athens will survive via Jerusalem. That, that's, that's my contrarian theory. I, I think Argentina or Chile for me, like South America is so far away from everything. And like they have, they don't have to import stuff. Like I think that the New Zealand fantasy starts to fall apart once you realize like they need to import a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, it's like, if you've been there, it's like they have some nice agricultural areas, but like other than that, like the modern society can fall apart pretty fast, but I, I'm no way Europe. 
Like that's just going to be a hellhole. Well, you're you're anti-European. That's the thing. You yeah, just hate Europe. I, I, nice place to visit, like I like to say. <laughs> but uh, um, what is the? And we're going to have Catherine Boyle on at some point, so we'll go much deeper. Uh, you know, Europe versus America divide. But Antonio, no, what no, do you no, think is no, is no, the no, difference? No, except Prince Harry, it's going to be a two-hour fucking Prince Harry <laughs> yeah. show. You and I both know this. At least if you record <laughs> in the next two weeks, that's all we're going to talk about. Yeah. And I'm going to literally walk off the camera and like just <laughs> protest the entire thing because I refuse well, to talk. Yeah, sure. I'm on too to discuss the Prince Harry. But just, I, I just don't know why he doesn't get a paternity test. Like that, that's like such an obvious thing that he should just go do. Because if if it is right, then he can do it, and he maybe can reconcile. I mean, and if it's wrong, run. he can have some big event and 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 just you know throw it back in their faces, and it you know embarrasses the king. Like that's I don't know. So one of the sub threads for those who don't know is that in fact I guess Harry is actually the son of Major Hewitt who I have to say, he does bear a certain resemblance to. Um, <laughs> and who supposedly, I, I was looking up, now fucking, you've got even me thinking about it. The British tabloids, apparently, he confessed to having had an affair. So that's where the theory comes from. Well, well, it's also that the royal family reads the tabloids every morning. They like spread them out. <laughs> I mean, that's their version of Twitter, right? Yeah. It's it's uh, the British tabloids is its own kind of, well, uh, it, you know, warfare. It's funny that the sum... That, that uh, some of our peer set has found kinship with um, with the royal family because they hate the press, um, and 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 builders can can relate to that perhaps at, at times. I have no I have no kinship with the royal family. <laughs> yeah, no, I, like the entire American Revolution was fought, so we don't have to think about any fucking fuckwit <laughs> that comes out of some you know but royal womb. That 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 was settled two centuries ago for they're, me. They're not even English; they're from <laughs> Hanover, Germany. Yeah. Uh, just to preview uh, a conversation we'll have about Europe, Europe and America, uh, Antonio, what do you think is like the the crux of the difference between how how you see that divide versus how uh, Dan or or Catherine might might see that divide? Wait, how Americans perceive Europe or Europe Americans? No, no, no. Both like, like, like the, the, what what is the argument we keep getting into about Europe and America? Well, I don't. I just don't think it totally sucks. Like, I, I think <laughs> uh, there's several levels at which you can ask that question. I mean, to be clear, I don't have this. The weird American progressive fascination with the fucking trains and what is supposedly socialized medicine and all that shit, that's, that's basically wrong. Like, you, you, if you go there for like a rail pass for two months, you're not seeing kind of the real Europe. There's definitely downsides. It's absolutely not a utopia. Um, but I think the, the, the debate we had was about like, is it still a dynamic society or is it basically a, you know, a retirement community inside a museum underneath an American military shield, which I think would be the Zahanesque take on, on, <laughs> on Europe, and which it is to a certain degree, right? Although Europeans don't realize it. That said, I think they're, you know, little personal whatever like when i moved to europe i have a new pet when i moved to europe it was to write chaos monkeys that i assumed i'd get blackballed from tech because i was writing this tell-all and whatever i was being all dramatic about it so I, I i moved to barcelona for a few months and then berlin and that's actually where i started writing chaos monkeys in berlin and lived in berlin which even then and now is kind of a, becoming a center of gravity right historically berlin was this weird divided city it's not the capital of germany again a lot of europeans are moving there the real estate's cheap it's cool whatever so i hung around berlin for a while talked a lot of entrepreneurs there's a whole tech scene there right the the bear case is <laughs> if you want to troll the Europeans, you know, there's this thing called cargo cult programming, which I, I think everyone here probably knows what it means. I don't know if you know, you know where the actual cargo cults come from? It's, it's like an anthropological reference. Worship of like crashed planes. Right, right. So in, in the South Pacific, and there's various ex examples of it, and I'm kind of generalizing, but in, in, in some of these islands uh, during World War II, like literally American planes showed up to turn them into air bases for the Pacific War, would pave a certain part of it about lots of you know goodies like tobacco chocolate whatever and they assumed almost this godlike status uh in the eyes of a lot of the locals who of course didn't quite understand what's going on and a number of cults formed around that 
And in, in, in some of them, I can't recall exactly the because they're all a little different. They actually dress up in what they remember to be U.S. servicemen to look like and kind of act like them. And it's a very common trope, by the way. A lot of traditional societies do this, the sort of notion of sympathetic magic. If, if we do something like the thing that we hope to have happen, that thing will happen, right? And so they, there's cults built around this. But somehow the, the big silver planes loaded with chocolate never appear out of the sky, right? And in, in the programming sense, what it means is you do something not really understanding why, but it seems to magically work. So that's the notion of cargo cult programming. So I, I would say that a lot of the European startup scene is kind of like the Pacific cargo cults, right? They, they drop a lot of American terms, a lot of agile and sprint and all this shit. And all their websites are full of all these startup buzz terms. But when you get there, it's like, where are the shiny planes of the Googles and the Facebooks that are like dropping off the goodies? And they kind of don't exist, right? It's not totally true. Of course, there are some startup successes in Europe. That's the bear case. The bull case is... Well, actually, part of the reason why you don't see that many startups is that there isn't the entrepreneurial culture that there isn't, that there is here. Here, here's another example I'll cite. Look at gun, gun laws in Europe, for example. Like the, the trope is nobody has guns in Europe. That's actually not true. The gun ownership rate is like non-zero in lots of European countries. You actually can own long guns and some handguns in Europe. It's just you, you have to jump through a few more hoops. You can't, it's not like a total fucking circus like it is here, but you can own them. But no, almost most people don't do it. Why not? Not that it's illegal. There just isn't a gun culture. People just don't do it because like, they're, they're not into guns. Same thing with startups. Like you can do it. In fact, in many cases, they're, they're better set up for startups than we are. Like in Barcelona, like the formerly industrial area, what we would call Soma in San Francisco has been taken over and turned into nothing but incubators. And the, the municipality gives money to startups. Like it's actually very easy to, to raise your, your first money in Europe and start a thing. But yet not that many people actually do it because the culture kind of isn't there. But if, but if you do have that culture, right? If, if, if you do have that fire, I think you can do it in Europe. And in fact, there are some positive sides to it, right? You don't worry about healthcare as much. You don't worry about crime. Um, you, I think if, if you had the American mindset in Europe, you could, you, could, you could have a career and a trajectory there, even though it's not center court of Wimbledon like U.S. is from anything. That's my point. I think that's a good preview of the, of the conversation we'll, 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 we'll have. Um, I want to can, I, can I do my I, bit I, on your... I moved Wait, back. So obviously... Yeah, look, so, so I want to be super clear. I am <laughs> bullish on Europeans, like the people. Uh, bearish on on Europe as like a as a thing, so like this like whole EU like it, basically I think if Germany goes away like th- it doesn't exist, and and so then you're going to kind of go back to what is probably closer to the historical norm, and maybe you actually from there you that that creates competition versus this kind of like weird Borg that is in Brussels that create these like regulations that that kind of suck and then like are kind of half enforced in certain countries and and it just like having tried to hire people in Europe as an American company, it's just like insane, right? Like com- compared to, and, and, and this is coming from, from a, you know, hiring people in California, which, which I think has like a reasonable set of protections. It's just like Europe is on a completely new level and you could argue, well, oh, that's what we should have. But that comes at a huge expense, right? It's like the dynamism of the American economy. Um, and I, I, I looked this up beforehand because I, I always, my, my retort to Antonio is always, how many IPOs has, has, has Europe had? So the largest IPO, I think, in the last 10 years in Europe was Porsche. And then the market cap is $8 billion. And so it's just like the, the, the biggest companies by market cap in Europe, LVMH and Nestle. And so just the, it, it, the regulations and, and the, the modern society that the EU has put in, yes, it's increased the safety net. No one's going to disagree with that. But you've removed the kind of like progress that happens from a civilizational standpoint. And you've, you've effectively just put it out to the U.S., to China, where, where, wherever, anywhere else where young, ambitious people who end up moving and, and can actually go accomplish that. And there are so many Europeans in Silicon Valley who basically were people there 
in, in their countries. And they were so frustrated with whatever they had in trying to build something new that they, they, they moved to the U.S. Okay, and so that. until, until that, that like stasis breaks, I'm just always going to kind of be like Europe, good people, nice place to visit, but like actually moving civilization forward from a technological progress standpoint. No. Okay, again, but, but you realize the same bias that we critique journalists, like they get their entire versions of tech from the disgruntled employee who leaves. You realize you're getting a slightly biased version of Europe by looking at those who are frustrated and, and leave. I, I think in our group, I cited two examples. Buddy of mine, Jordi Romero, Catalan guy. He started his first Romero, company. I mean, he's clearly got some yeah, brains. He's <laughs> Catalan guy. He's not Spanish. Um, he, he created what became Red Booth, which is kind of a Slack competitor. And now he's a Factorial, which is an HR company, unicorn company. He actually started his first company in the United States. He heard the siren call. He saw the bling. Started a second one. What's made him wealthy is actually in Spain. Um, uh, another example, in, in Berkeley, I used to live at iHouse, which is like this weird international house thing for internationals. Used to hang out with the French and the Spanish people. I speak French, whatever. But it was all like elite graduates of the Consacol who went to the best schools in France. I think literally all of them left and went back. Like they came here in like full startup boom in the early aughts and they just, they all bailed. Um, I, it, like, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to get that critique when you go to Europe and the poorest part of one of the poorest countries in, in Europe, i.e. Galicia, where my family's from, has better infrastructure and roads than the richest state in the richest country in the world, which is California. This state is fucking falling apart. It looks like the third world. If coming from Europe, it looked like a fucking shit. I'm sorry. It looks like a shithole. And like, to look at that and say, oh, no, Europe is lost. It's like literally everything except the startup scene is better than it is here. Right. It's like I agree with you. Yes. Like there's more tech IPOs here, but you're measuring it, it, it's, a, it's a stat that literally begs the question that it proves the point you're trying to make. If you look at other indicators of societal success, it's not so clearly that the U.S. has, right? I'm not going to deny that, like in the sense that I, what I value, though, is, is progress, right? And, and that, that, that comes with the Whig history, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, on, on the stuff that I don't like. But, but the U.S. feels like a place that's actually moving forward, whereas Europe, the, the stuff that's moving forward in Europe is the virtue signaling of let's shut down nuclear power plants in Germany, and now a third of their electricity comes from coal. Well, we have that, and here so too, I, right? I think that like like they can lecture us all they want on on you know oh look at like our safety net and whatever, but th the reality is the U.S. pulls back a little bit on on being the protector with NATO. Huh. Who, the the only reason Ukraine hasn't fallen at this point is because of Western weapons, and who's providing most of those Western weapons? And, and so that, that, that is where I think it's like a, my biggest issue is like the, the, again, the EU is my biggest gripe. It's not the individual countries as much or the people for sure not. It's just the, the, the better than now version of, of society that is living under the American security blanket. And now we're dealing with a little bit more history. And so maybe, maybe things do change there in the next 10 years when all of a sudden you can't get cheap gas from Russia. So. I think it might. I mean, my, my vibe when I was there, and admittedly, it was like the fever immediately after the war, hanging around Poland with the refugees and stuff, was that you never saw Europe more mobilized than then, right? Like, literally, people like Poland spending 5% of GDP or whatever on defense. You have conversation, you know, Spain, which is practically a pacifist country at this point, actually sending weapons, Denmark doing the same. Like, there's a level of liveliness there that you, you haven't seen before. So maybe history will, will rebegin. But again, I, you know, no question, the US is better. Like, I've always said that my ideal Frankenstein country would have the American private sphere, you know, private sector and the European public sector kind of in one country, which doesn't exist. And maybe, maybe can't exist. But like, yes, against blowing shit up and creating new startups, the US is by far the world's leader. But it just seems that everything else, it is such a fucking slog. And again, like in San Francisco, I've often joked that like, 
the reason why so many startups came from, from San Francisco, you had to create billion dollar companies to fix what's broken with the city, right? Like literally <laughs> housing market is completely fucked. And so you have to create Airbnb. The public transport is a disaster. So you have to create Uber. Like literally everything's broken in the city. You have to create like a billion dollar startup to fix it. Um, and it's just odd to me that in some sense, you have to like sell a company in order to afford what a middle-class German person accepts as like their birthright, <laughs> i.e. safe neighborhoods, access to high culture and decent schooling, right? Like here, that is actually a luxury in many ways, right? And again, it's hard to look at that and say, oh yeah, fuck yeah, America. I don't know. And, and as an individual, again, we're not paying, the question is not geopolitical fucking fantasy football. It's where do I raise my kids and where do I live my career as someone who can navigate that culture, right? Can, again, it's a false comparison, like picking somebody up from America and dropping them in Europe or vice versa is not necessarily really the choice. Just imagine like, you were actually raised there, where would you be better off? And it's not clear to me which way. It depends where you are in the ambition, you know, ability, yeah. talent. And interestingness, right? Because we know Red America is actually going to be a completely fine place to, to be and, and affordable. Is it? <laughs> where, where are you right now, Daniel Romero, if you don't mind giving me your position? I, I'm in Utah right now, the great state you, of Utah. You? <laughs> I, Got him. Out, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and the cows are like in the high desert, of course. Yeah, so, something <laughs> like that. Is that a, okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, why is the public sector so much worse in the U.S. than like? I don't know. I, I've, I've asked myself that same question. Like again, like why does it suck so much? Like it's not clear to me it needs to suck, right? Like I think the reverse is not true. I think in Europe, again, let me illustrate it with anecdata. Um, someone at Berkeley, a uh, woman at the time, I had a huge crush on her. Um, very talented. <laughs> Um, master's degree, like, you know, very educated, came from, uh, Ecole Polytechnique, which is super hard to get into. It's like the prestige, you know, French MIT. And then she goes back to France and becomes a functionary in the ministry of transport or whatever. And, you know, I occasionally look up what she's up to, like, you know, colleagues that you had in college or whatever. And there she is in front of this gorgeous, I hate to sound like that fucking stupid American who's in love with the train, but in front of this gorgeous French train, right. And clearly like one of the smartest, most capable people of that society joined the public sector and made sure that they're a public trans, like what could, yep. she could have by far outpaced any product marketing manager, product manager at, you know, Coinbase or Facebook or anything, but she chose to go back and serve the state. And it, you, you might laugh at that, but I, I think a lot of, again, it's not like a total anti-American, which I'm typically not, but in, in the U S like the way Americans describe themselves, there's a lot of cope, right. And there's a lot of exceptionalism and there's a lot of like, Oh, this is like a general principle that applies everywhere. It's like, no, this is just a pathology of America. It's like, oh, the government is always, always fucked up under problems. Like, no, I mean, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everyone thinks that, then indeed it will fucking suck. But that's, that's not necessarily true everywhere, right? And so, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it has to suck. I, like, I, for example, there's a story in the New York Times recently, random little micro story. Fa I didn't even know this. Facebook tried to restore the Dumbarton Rail Bridge. I don't know if you guys saw this. You, you guys see it? I posted mm -hmm. it. And so if, if, for those who don't know, Facebook is like on the, basically in like what is recovered marshland on the, on south, but like way south, Bay, like way away from San Francisco. And there's what's called the Dumbarton Bridge, which is a, like a regular road bridge. And there's a bunch of old infrastructure down there, like railroads. And it's a kind of a weird part of the bay. And there's an old railroad bridge there. And Facebook had the idea of like, hey, why don't we restore the railroad bridge um, and make it easier for transit? Not, not just for Facebook employees, for everybody. And basically there was like 15 agencies involved. It basically broke down. And the feeling you get is that like, Yo, they're not sending their best. Like clearly the people running these government agencies are just not very bright. Like it is not the, I'm not going to mention your name or whatever, you know, the, the person that I met at, at Berkeley, it is like clearly not the A team here of society that are running these organizations and it just never happened. Right. And that, you know, it, and that, that's, that's not, that's not universal, by the way. It's not, that's not true in every country. 
Um, you, you look at these gorgeous photos of infrastructure in the Netherlands, Japan, that literally would be like a pipe dream in the United States. And yet that's the case here. I don't know. Um, doesn't have to be that way, right? But it is somehow. But I, but I, so another example on the California thing, because I love making fun of California, <laughs> is uh, the, all this rain that we've been having. Um, apparently they're not letting it fill the reservoirs because they're worried about flooding. And it turns out that the state passed a 2012 bill or you know referendum to fund a new reservoir. 10 years later, they have not built it because of regulatory delays. Wow. Um, so instead of helping alleviate the drought, they are now letting the water flood out. Um, so I, like, and, and there's that, that classic New York Times story from the last few years where the, it's like, what is the, the second Avenue subway cost per mile? It's like a billion dollars yes. per mile to build subway. And, and so like the, the thing that I, I push on is, okay, so you have California can't build the, the rail project. Yeah. You, know, you can't build the subway. You can't build the reservoir. So why is it that this, the states where people are the most pro-government, right? Like the highest tax rates and generally, you know, pretty, pretty blue where people are like, okay, government is the thing we should be increasing. Why do they have the uh, most dysfunction relative to a state like Utah or Texas or something like that? And, and yes, those other states have other issues, especially on the social side, but from a pure state capacity and efficiency of government, why, why, why? Why is it the case? And and I don't know. My my, my hunch is that it's probably unions, um, but that you know it sounds like a, a classic conservative talking point. But you're a crypto libertarian, Dan. That's why you always blame it on the unions. Every crypto libertarian always blames everything on the unions. It's like, oh, American cars suck as the unions, and ignore the fact that German cars are made with unions. I mean, it it is weird though, right? That like, look at Florida. Florida has high speed. Has anyone have you ridden the rail? Speaking of fucking trains, the trains in Florida. Have, no. Eric, you're Miami, right? Don't, written, don't they have one now from Miami that goes north and it's like it's, really it's fast and delightful? I have, I, again, I'm not a train guy in general. Yeah, I you're, to, you're the kind of guy who's like a train nerd, goes oh, to Europe, just like, so we should have the trains guy. here. But I assure you the Brightline is the most incredible. It is the best train in America. It's the only train in America that's even remotely comparable to a European train. And it takes off right there from downtown. It's like downtown center or whatever. It's like 10 blocks north of downtown. And it goes all the way through Palm Beach. And like, I shit you not, like you open a mobile app, like I have no idea how it works. I just open the mobile app and like, yeah, I need to go to Palm Beach for this conference. And then they're like, oh, by the way, would you like to book like an optional Tesla to take you to your final destination? Because, you know, it's Florida, you need a, I'm like, no way this is going to work. But yeah, fuck it, whatever, $10, sure. I get there. There's a guy in a fucking fluorescent yellow Tesla waiting to take me. It's like the most first class experience. The ticket, by the way, only costs like 20 bucks, which, you know, taking it every day might get a little expensive, but it's not some super luxury thing. And you sit there on this gorgeous train and you get there and the lounge looks like an Amex Centurion lounge. It's incredible. And somehow we've gotten to a state where Florida, fucking Florida, the state I was raised in, by the way, somehow has better government and better infrastructure than California. Uh, yeah, I, I don't it's know. Because Ron DeSantis doesn't talk to the press. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You, you, you were like taken over by the spirit of Zayhan. Now, Balaji, you've been taken over, possessed by the spirit of Balaji. I mean, that Peter Baker story in the New York Times, where he de defines the New York Times as nonpartisan press, and, and <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, it's like too comical. I, I didn't read, did you put in the New Yorker piece about the Twitter files, by the way? I, I didn't read that yet. I stopped reading the New Yorker 10 years ago. <laughs> in closing of our introduction episode, I, I want to close with this question, like, what are we hoping to do with this show? If we look back, you know, a year from now and are like, this was a good use of time. This was a success. What will that look like? What's the outcome? I'll, I'll take a first stab at even just a direction there. 
I want us to make something that that is both timely and in, in, in that it helps people, you know, make sense of what's happening now, but also timeless in that if people are watching this episode six months from now or a year from now, they'll they'll understand something that helps them make you know make sense of their worldview e- even then. That, that 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 you know, Bern Hobart has this idea where he's like. Bern Hobart, we should have Burn come on the podcast. He's, he's yeah, an entertaining Burn, guy. Yeah, yeah he's great. He, he has this. He he thinks of his Substack as like trying to write history in the present, or you know, trying to write something that has so much fidelity to to what's real um, that or what you know how it will be perceived six months from now. That if you read it, then uh, you know it'll still be valuable. How about we just have more modest ambitions of not getting canceled? Can we just do that? <laughs> <laughs> just have a sign behind you every week Antonio how many weeks before we've been cancelled someone was making fun of us on Twitter they were like uh, quoting us like I don't endorse anything on this podcast like, I've never heard of any writer on this podcast <laughs> we got accused of snap to the grid intellectualism I, I think we need a little bit more beef on the episode I, today we basically had a difference of opinion on Europe I, I think for me the, the, the two things one Eric you asked me to do it so you know you're a friend yeah, and I said sure appreciate it. I said I don't have much time and so yeah. I had to cut something out so I'm not watching any television. So Mark, no more television for me. <laughs> um, and then the second thing is I was realizing that even though I got rid of so many of these group chats, I'm still in enough number of group chats that basically the only person who ever hears me rant about what's happening in group chats is my wife. And she's like, you should start a podcast. And so <laughs> I'm trying to use it as a channel of instead of just ranting uh, in private is to actually put a stake in the ground and, and share I don't know what I think and um, have, have a little bit of fun. It's about time. Dan is the most, not only the most handsome man in crypto, the most reasonable man as well. This is just horrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, let's, uh, let, let, let's wrap on that. We have upcoming episodes with, uh, with Bology. Tease, let's, let's show a little skin. Like tease with the names that we're betting around that we're like 90% certain are going to show up. Uh, Bology, although he keeps big timing us. Uh, well, why, don't we, why don't we put it to the fans to vote? We don't have that many fans, but well, if you vote, vote today, whatever, whatever <laughs> yeah, they do, exactly. No, yeah. we, we have a dialogue community. Share some of the people that we're thinking about having yeah. come on. Bology, uh, Mike Solana, Catherine Boyle, uh, Shriram, um, Dominic Cummings. Uh, he retweeted oh. us, uh, so I'm going to ask him to come on. Um, who else is there? Amjad will be a recurring guest, and and hopefully Mark will as well. Your your favorite uh, ex convict, uh, Andrew Tate. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's future. We mean ex ex convict. <laughs> uh, Martin Shkreli. Oh yeah, Martin Shkreli. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gonna chronicle the SBF uh, scenario, and um, you you guys were a bit more, or Antonio certainly was was a bit more hesitant. I, I guess in terms of the I, same. I I don't actually know enough about him, but. Yeah, I might have to get a sudden cold on that one and just not be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We need to go to our cancellation guru, who we all know, uh, and ask what, what, what he thinks about that one. Yeah. Imad is okay of, uh, oh, yeah. of, uh, of, stable, of stable diffusion. That would be a fascinating yeah. interview. And um, yeah, it'll grow organically from there. Um, shall we wrap on that? Works for me. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, until next time, uh, thanks for joining. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of security. Hey, it's Eric. 
There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. Wondering what on earth is happening up in space? They just dropped a series on the satellite economy. Or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.